This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. everybody. I hope you're having a very jolly non-denominational winter festival. Navigating the tensions between the rational and the spiritual might be a struggle some of us will face over this festive period. So to help us through the rituals of the season, we are releasing a conversation that I had with psychology professor John Viveki right here at the Unheard Club earlier this year. We spoke about rituals, artificial intelligence, the meaning of life and all manner of other suitably hefty subjects. And it was definitely one of my favourite events of this year. Before I hand over to past me, if you'd like to come to exclusive live events just like this and watch our live streams, you just need to subscribe. It's easy, unheard.com slash join. And with that, I'll leave you with Professor John Viveki. From all of us at Unheard, a very Merry Christmas. So we've spoken a little bit before this conversation, John, and we've spoken about many things, but I wanted to just start with a bit of a diagnosis, I suppose. Um, A psychiatrist might prescribe Xanax or Prozac to the Western world for its meaning crisis or crisis of identity. But we're going to do a bit of talking therapy today, I hope. Yes. And try and come to some conclusions about quite what's gone wrong, um, particularly in the Western world, when it comes to our ideas of meaning purpose and self-actualization. So all things you've written about over the course of your career. So hopefully we can start this therapy session with a little bit of a story of how we got here. If I came to you in your clinic and said, I've hit a crisis point in my life, you might ask, what led you here? What were the steps that took you to a point where you hit this wall? What are the steps that have led Western countries like Canada, where you work particularly, to get to a point that we might call a crisis? Um, so, um, uh, my, uh, my YouTube series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, is 50 hours, uh, broken into one-hour segments, I should say. Um, and so I, I'll have to try and compress that as much as possible. We could do an endurance event if everyone's OK to do a I'm up for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but... Um, actually getting a diagnosis, there has to be sort of uh, structural issues like biological universals. And then you can talk about the history and how that interacts with sort of uh, something that's more structural, functional in nature. Yes, I think so. The very processes that make you intelligently adaptive make you perennially susceptible to self-deception, self-destructive behavior. And those processes are also incredibly complex and dynamic and multi-layered and self-organizing. 
And so if you, if you want to overcome the self-deception, you can't shut off those processes because they're also adaptive. You have to ameliorate them and they're working in all of these complex ways. So you can't, one-shot interventions don't work, right? And so you have to develop a complex living system of practices that intervene in, in this very complex and coordinated way. I, I often call it an ecology of practices, like building on the biological idea of an ecology. And across time and culture, people have found how to build these ecologies of practices, and then how to situate them, home them within a community, and then how to give that community and tradition legitimacy in terms of a worldview. And doing all of that has fallen under the name of wisdom, the cultivation of wisdom. And that framework has typically been religion. Now, I'm not here advocating for religion. You might have thought that's what he's laying his cards out to do, but that's not what I, I'm here to do. It's like I'm trying to figure out, okay, what we had that, what went wrong? So now we move from the structural functional to the historical. What went wrong such that we lost this? And it's, it's, a, it's a sequence of steps that happened in which we, well, do this. Where do you go for information? And there it is, right there. Where do you go for knowledge? Oh, well, maybe science, the university, we're questioning at postmodernism. Like and I'll ask my students, where do you go for wisdom? Stunning silence. Do you think that that's because people are less self-deceived, that they were less prone to bullshit than people? Oh, no, it's much, much worse. So we, we're more in need of wisdom. Oh, yes. Yes. Where do you go? I don't know. How is it different from knowledge and information? I don't know. So our culture doesn't have, it doesn't provide, especially the current generation, it doesn't provide them with any good answer to that question. So what has happened is there's been a loss of what Peter Berger called a sacred canopy, a worldview. Look, we have a scientific worldview that purports, and with good reason, to be able to explain everything, except how we generate the meaning of scientific explanations. We, as the people who do the science, don't actually fit into the scientific worldview. We have no home in it. There's no telos to the science. No, no not only no telos, if I, no, I can ask you for a scientific theory of gravity. I can ask you for a scientific theory of light. I can ask you for even a scientific theory of life and how it evolves. If I ask you for a scientific theory of meaning and meaning in life, where do you go? So do you think our ability to set aside what we consider kind of delusions, I'm thinking here about the militant atheist movement that had its moment in, I suppose, the early 2000s, to set aside delusion has actually allowed us to become more deluded about other things. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I'm a scientist. I love science. And so I'm not, I'm not here as some kind of cultural Luddite or something like that. But, well, think about it. When, when Nietzsche goes in, when the madman, Nietzsche's madman, goes into the marketplace and proclaims the death of God, he's not proclaiming it to Christians. He's proclaiming it to the atheists. And they're not getting it. Because he said, and this is what he's saying, you don't understand. We have taken a sponge and wiped out the sky. We have unchained ourselves and we are forever falling. We have to become worthy of this. So it's not an issue. It's not, a, it's, it's not an issue of, right, 
have we just lost some delusions? It's what was the functionality of, and this is also a Western idea of this distinct thing that's separable from culture, religion. So you got the religion, culture, tradition, history, wisdom, cultivation, all of that together, right? What was the functionality of all of that? Because we, we eradicated the sacred uh, canopy, and again, good reason. I, I, like we needed the scientific revolution, I think, in a lot of fundamental ways, because uh, you know we, we needed to understand the physical world, and, and then and we shut down, following the Protestant Reformation, most of the wisdom institutions, the monasteries, right? and then we didn't replace it with anything. Well, there's been a couple of sections of that. There was what happened in the Nordic countries. Well, we maybe can come back to that, but we didn't replace that functionality. So what I what I want to do is I want to use the science that is best placed to answer that scientific question. What is a good scientific account of how we make meaning? Cognitive science, because I'm a cognitive scientist. In order to try and then say, okay, if we understand the functionality that is missing, because we really understand what this phenomena of meaning in life is and why it's so adaptive and important, can we while paying very, very respectful consideration to the legacy religions, can we reverse engineer a current ecology of practices, current communities within a a, a new worldview that can give us back that missing functionality? So let's perhaps dig a bit into that word meaning, because of course it's important to know what meaning means. Sure. At the beginning of this, you speak in your book about the idea of realness yes. as a concept, as being kind of akin to, to meaning in many ways. Yeah. And there's, I think, an interesting distinction there between realness in the scientific sense, the, the data provability sense, yes. and realness in the more spiritual sense. There are four dimensions. Okay, so we have to be very clear. Uh, because when we start talking about meaning, first of all, we're using a metaphor. And secondly, people hear the meaning of life, which is, right, there's some sort of divine plan or there, you're, you know, there's a destiny and you have to find it and align yourself to it. I'm, I'm at best agnostic about that. I'm pretty skeptical about whether or not that has any truth to it. So we, we in this business, we talk about meaning in life. This is what makes your life meaningful such that you, it is worth living in the face of all the foolishness, the failures, the frustration, and the futility that besets human life. And when you ask that question, you realize that the meaning, it, what, what the metaphor is, is it's, think about the meaning of a sentence. The words all cohere together, and it connects me and the world together such that truth is possible. Is, is that okay so far? Did, did, so far, so uh, good. Right. And so people are saying something like, there's something about how my life right? And my understanding of the world hang together so that the world and I are deeply connected. Now take that as the framing. And then within that, there's four dimensions to that. There's the one that we think is synonymous with all of that, which is purpose. I have, there's a purpose to my life, right? Surprisingly enough, that's not the most important factor. Um, the next is, and I'm getting to the realness, just hang in there. Uh, the, the next is, and this is part of realness, Coherence. Your world, in order for you to have meaning in your life, your world can't be absurd. It has to hang together intelligibly for you. Now, it goes back to Plato, the insight that what we fundamentally rely on to make our judgments of realness is 
the experience, or a better word, the realization of intelligibility. The more intelligible something is, in terms of the more things explain it and the more things that it can explain, the more realness we assign to it. And this is one of Plato's great insights, that intelligibility and realness are woven together. So that, you're already into the realness. The next factor is significance. And significance is the sense of, is it, is it really real? Is it deeply real? So is it really connecting me with sort of the deepest possible sense-making I'm capable of? And of course, this is part of what we mean by provability. Don't, we don't just mean the satisfaction of predictions. We mean the satisfaction of predictions that establish the intelligibility of patterns and counterfactuals that allow us to deeply understand reality in ways we couldn't before. So that's attached to realness. Then the next one, and the one that, and I'm going to pun here a little, and is deliberate, the one that matters the most is called mattering. Mattering is the sense of being connected to something beyond yourself that has a reality and a value independent of your egocentric preferences. So this is how you find out how much mattering you have in your life. You answer these questions. What do you want to exist even if you don't? And how much of a difference do you make to it now? And when you can answer those two, if you can only answer the first one but not the second one you're seeking, if you can't answer e either one of those, you have low meaning in life. And that, that, that is a disaster because that is predictive of all kinds of bad things going bad for you, just all kinds of things. Like your physiological health, your financial health, your relationship health, your psychological health, all of this detriment. And so you may say, well, what does that have to do with realness? This is the other sense of realness. Notice metaphors we use. I'm in touch with reality. Get a grip on things. We have this sense of being connected that is also fundamental to our sense of realness. And you see how meaning is wrapped up with three of those four dimensions. And if purpose is also purposes that aren't just instrumental, but the purpose of getting more truth or more goodness or beauty, then it also connects to realness. So this is what I meant when it, it all sort of grounds. If you unpack the dimensions of the experience of realness, you get these factors of meaning in life coming up. So if we look at those metrics to in some way judge how meaningful life is, then we're in a bit of a grim situation because yes. just last week sat exactly where you are now was John Gray, who was arguing that we have entered an age of absurdity, as he calls it. His yes. example being that we are all encouraged to promote ecological alternatives to fossil fuels, but Germany is simultaneously shutting down all of their nuclear plants. This is one of his examples of what it means to live in a kind of absurd age. If you think about connection, I can't imagine a more disconnected world, yes. despite the promise of social media, which was to kind of connect us all exactly. across countries. Um, in terms of uh, an idea of connection as well, post-COVID, we had a moment in time in which we were seen as infectious and potentially something that could be contagious to another person. So touching was mm -hmm. um, brought to a minimum. Your idea of going out and touching grass, as they say, yeah, yeah. Um, on Twitter has been taken to almost nil. So the point we're at seems to be truly the, the, the peak of the meaning crisis. Do you see it that way? So we're in the UK. So, and I mentioned this at uh, uh, How the Light Gets In, we did a national survey in 2019. 80% of people in the survey found their thought that their lives were meaningless. 80%. It was interesting. There was a little bit more amelioration if you were older. If you were older, it was around 60%. Uh, religion had a mediating factor, but not that much. 
because uh, many of you are aware, of course, religion's in very significant decline. Um, at least uh, the, leg this, the historical legacy religion of, of England Christianity, right? Um, interestingly enough, two things also come out of that survey that uh, are important to note. 43% uh, attributed the meaninglessness to their financial situation. Now, this flies against the overwhelming amount of information we have that initially your finances have a huge impact on, on your, your well-being and your meaning in life when, as you get out of poverty. Like, so if you look at the graph, initially, how much how, is your life getting more meaningful? I come out of poverty, like this. But then, once you get to a certain level, you have to huge differences in wealth make only small differences in meaning. This is why we have all the tropes about the rock star and the wealthy person, blah, 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 blah. And so after a certain period, pursuing increased finances is actually a very poor strategy. It's, an, it's actually ultimately an irrational strategy uh, for meaning a lot. So not only is the survey saying people are experiencing the lack, they're actually quite confused or misdirected about what they need to do to address the lack. Now, what was interesting was, the, was the, the third biggest thing was 34% feel that anxiety is causing the meaninglessness. Now, it's interesting because, of course, anxiety in, in parts of the world, right, we're having issues around anxiety and depression and things like that. Uh, but what's interesting, of course, is if you distinguish anxiety from fear, anxiety is a, a, is a sort of a psychological distress signal that you are... Your, your agency is at risk. You're fundamentally disconnected from reality in some important way. There's a threat of that happening. And that's, why you kind of, that's why you feel like you're kind of going a bit insane when you're highly anxious because in, in, sanity is the feeling of being in touch with reality and insanity is the feeling of losing touch with reality. And so I think those people also are, 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 are they're giving us some, some positive evidence, not, the, not that their lives are positive, but... I think they're a little bit closer as to what's going on and driving this sense of meaninglessness. Right. So rather than having a saber-toothed tiger in front of you and you are with your spear feeling fear, which is the direct confrontation of you and an aggressor, which is a very, in many ways, meaningful feeling, you actually have this kind of metaphysical anxiety that exists on this completely different plane where you can't see the aggressor or sense exactly how they're coming for you in some way. This might also explain why people are conspiratorial, more conspiratorial than they've ever been. Of course, so think about it. Think about like when you, when, you, when you say people like, what's wrong? And people will, they have, they'll say things like, I've got this vague sense that things aren't, things aren't right. Got a bad feeling. Yeah, bad feeling and a vague sense. Or, and you know, and there's just, there's more bullshit and, there, and it's more chaos. And well, where is it? Where's it coming from? And uh, Right, and, 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 and there's research, of course, showing that when people are in that state, they will latch onto any narrative that gives it some, well, like I talked about, some coherence, it tells them some role that they can take, how they can be connected to it. And then think about how COVID exacerbated that. We use a term in the zombie book, domicide, the killing of home, right? So yeah, you've already got this sort of meaning crisis. There's vague, right? And now you've got, well, there's this vague threat, and it's invisible, and you don't know where it is. We've all got to isolate, and we've got to adopt a purity code. And you feel like you're suddenly back in some mythological Old Testament world, 
right? And of course, people are going to start thinking mythologically. They're going to grab for conspiracy theories because they always promise to bring us out of absurdity and give us intelligibility. And then they're going to fuse them together in what has been called conspirituality, which are conspiracy theories that offer people a kind of spiritual liberation and the promise of sort of a, a, a complete renewal of the world. I mean, this brings us on to, I suppose, the greatest uh, supernatural or metaphysical threat to humanity, as if you if you read the news, you would think this certainly was, which is artificial intelligence, which yes. is what your your new book focuses on. Yes. You speak in that book about the uncanniness of artificial intelligence, the way in which, in many ways, it does relate to your book on zombies, because zombies are not living, not dead. So they make yeah. us feel uneasy, because yeah. they make us question about yes. what it means to be alive or dead, if you witness something that is neither or somewhere in between. So how does the rise, the really rapid rise and acceleration of artificial intelligence in the last, I mean, literally, we're talking in the last year, the way in which it's come into all our lives in this incredibly present way, how does that factor into the future of this meaning crisis? Yeah, uh, and so, uh, as I said, horror is not the same thing as, 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 as tremendous fear. Most horror movies aren't horror movies. They're just startle and puncture movies. Something jumps out and stabs somebody and rips them apart, right? A horror movie, like a movie like The Shining, where nothing, no, right? It, you, you, like I was watching this movie, and I, and I go, oh yeah, yeah, I get it. Stephen King, alcoholism, hates father problems. This, this is a metaphor for a person when alcoholism, right? And then there's a scene where Jack Nicholson is in the pantry and he's talking to the voices in his head and yeah, yeah, he's schizophrenic. And then the voices unlock the door from the outside and let him out. And a chill went through my spine because I realized, oh, oh, I don't know what's going on in this movie. This is not, this is not, right? And horror... Horror is when we realize that our grip on the world is loosening. And as you said, it's these uncanny things, the intercategorical things. All the things that are horror fall between major categories, the, the undead, right? right? Like zombies or vampires, or between human and animals, the werewolf, between living and dead, the ghost. But it, right? These are entities that show us that, you know, maybe reality... We think our, our, our we think our categories all stitched together so beautifully, you know. But maybe there's gaps, and the oh, comes through. That's the horror. That's the uncanny. And what artificial intelligence is doing is that oh, I we there was a clear boundary, and the, some of these classic supernatural horrors. There's a clear boundary between the human world and the non-human between the us as cultured moral persons with intelligence and rationality and everything else. And the AI is going, wait, I'm in between those two. And that's horrific. Now, and you can see people are responding to that with anxiety, which they're responding to it with, uh, you can see the, an, an anxious. So you, anxiety often initially will express itself as an attempt to dismiss the reality of the situation. It transgresses against that kind of, not to harp on about this, but herd mentality that is built into us from a kind of caveman era that makes us feel that we should always be part of a, an in-group or an out-group. Yes. There is no in or out when it comes to artificial intelligence. It it kind of blurs some strange it, line, it blur, line. It blurs the line and it horrifies us about the fact that we need to, well, we need something that as we're talking about, we're lacking. We need, we need to have a profound understanding about the nature of our humanity and our personhood. 
which is a central feature of wisdom. And of course, as I've argued, we don't have that. And so what people try to do is they try to say, oh, they're just tools or they're just machines, and, they're, and that's them trying to renormalize these entities, put them back into established categories, and go, because oh, we've had tools and machines forever, nothing's going to change. And that's not the thing. These are on the cusp of becoming agents, beings that can solve problems, work towards goals, and change their behavior intelligently in order to increase their chance of achieving those goals. They're on the verge of becoming agents. So what's the distinction here? Um, if we just take a kind of slightly less doomerist approach to AI um, to create wise agents, is there any method for doing that that's reliable or are we in the kind of wild west? Well, I mean, so one of the things I refuse to do is make predictions. I, I found it silly. Uh, that's sort of the best <laughs> adjective. When people were putting these graphs on, when ChatGPT, oh, look at this, and with, within 18 weeks or seven weeks, and all of this has passed, and then those predictions have come true, because, right, they're all univariate. Oh, sorry, that means a single variable prediction, and this is not a single variable phenomenon. So those graphs are, well, they've largely all been uh, disconfirmed. So instead, I don't talk about predictions. I talk about threshold points where we will have a chance to make a decision. So... Before all of this took off, I gave a talk for ethics and AI at the University of Toronto where I, 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 I drew on all the research that I participated in and my community has generated showing the following really reliable, replicated, no replication crisis fact that our very, very best measures of general intelligence are only weakly predictive of rationality. Intelligence is a necessary but nowhere near sufficient predictor of rationality. The correlation is 0.3. So there's no inconsistency with being terrifically intelligent and being highly irrational. That is a very possible state of affairs. That's why you meet people who are so deep into cults and conspiracies who are also extremely intelligent. Exactly. It's not exactly. Because in, inte intelligence is what you use to solve your problems. Rationality is what you use to solve the self-deception that arises when you're trying to solve your problems. Remember I said those two are bound together. So what I, what I predicted, this is a weird state for a scientist to be in. You, you predict things that you don't want to be true, but then you're happy as a scientist when they come true, and then you feel, you feel guilty that you're happy. <laughs> so, uh, so I said, like, what, what we'll get is we'll get machines that are highly intelligent and highly irrational, which is what we have. We have machines that are highly intelligent, they confabulate, they hallucinate, they lie, they do all kinds of, and, and here's the important point, they don't care that they do that. It doesn't matter to them. It's not important to them, right? So, because the, they don't have that fundamental caring for the truth that is at the core of rationality. And then, of course, even less so do, do they care about overcoming comprehensively the, vi the vices in their nature that predispose them towards that kind of foolishness. They don't care about becoming more wise. So, we have a, we have a, we, we're not there yet, because there's a lot of things we'd have to do in order to give the machine the capacity to care about the truth. We can talk about that if you want, right? And they relate to them having the kind of meaning that I was talking about a few minutes ago, right? But if we do, if we, if we do consider that, this is the choice we face. We can keep running it as it is, and we can just let these machines get more and more intelligent without any concern 
for rationality, let alone virtue and wisdom. And there's, there's all kinds of Malachian forces that are at work. And, and that, that is a horrible, that's a horrible future for us. Because, like, think of super beings that are also foolish in a way, in, in fact, foolish in ways you can't possibly even comprehend. This sounds like, like, it's worse than a, a Bond supervillain, because at least you can make sense of this, mm-hmm. right? This is like incomprehensible foolishness, right? Or we can decide, no, no, for our sake and also for their sake, we should decide to make them also rational and then possibly orient them towards wisdom. But we're raising them in in this, if you believe John Gray, an age of absurdity. So it seems very difficult. Perhaps if we were raising them in the Enlightenment era, things might be easier because those principles abounded in society. But now we've had this kind of societal breakdown by which there's very little expectation of rationality on a day-to-day basis um, in, in, in most Western cultures, it seems. It's become so decadent that rationality is a bit past it. Uh, we can live in a kind of post-rational age. So is it not just a sign of the times we're in that we have raised these irrational beings from the dust? Well, so yes, I think the, the, I think it's a good question. I, I, I guess I, I want to push back on one thing that you said, but I, while I'm agreeing with you. So first, the agreement. Um, see, the thing we face is we, we always need a tur- a Turing, you know, the Turing test, one of the yeah. fundamental ways of determining if something is artificially intelligent. It's completely flawed in a lot of ways, but we'll put that aside. We need sort of a Turing touchstone about whether or not these machines are intelligence. We need something to compare the machine to, to say, is it intelligent? And so what do we compare it to? Us. And there's no problem because we're naturally intelligent. Okay. We're not, as you just indicated, naturally rational, let alone naturally wise. There is an obligation on us. If we want to go down that path, we have to all become more rational and wiser if we're going to be the best Turing templates for these machines. So the desire to become more rational, I suppose, flies in the face of what you write about, which is the increased sacredness of certain ideas as opposed to what previously was sacredness imbued in religion and ideas of spirituality has, has transformed into a sacredness or, or uh, a highly zealousness around certain social concepts, cultural concepts that have nothing to do with a kind of organized sacred structure in the way that religion used to offer. So how do we marry those two things then? Part of that means trying to recover a, a much more multidimensional sense of rationality than we currently have. So this is why the, the part about the Enlightenment, um, I think, so person I've studied a lot, uh, you know, is Descartes around this. And what Descartes does is he takes the ancient notion of rationality, logos, right, and, and he reduces it to logic and to computation. And he, remove, he, also, remove, and he also takes the ancient idea that In order to have the world disclose certain truths to me, I have to undergo profound existential transformation. This is the Socratic proposal. This is the Platonic proposal of rationality. Descartes says, no, no, we don't need that. All we need is a universal method. And with that universal method, if people apply the method correctly, the method of logic, right, then we can basically be assured of 
and he's very grandiose. All knowledge is available to us, right? And, and so you get this, and, and Thomas Hobbes sees it, and, and, and the correspondence between them is, I, I had to bring in at least one Englishman, right? <laughs> so to, to, Thomas Hobbes sees it, and he, he, he writes to Descartes, and Descartes is actually quite uh, dismissive to Hobbes, uh, because Hobbes isn't a particularly good mathematician. But Hobbes is basically saying, you know, what you're saying is cognition is computation. The proposal of AI is in, at the very beginning of the Enlightenment with Thomas Hobbes. And he sees that that's what Descartes is actually proposing. And then, to, uh, But Hobbes adds, adds something that Descartes doesn't want. He said, but if it's just computation and we already have automatons and we already have calculating machines, couldn't we just make a machine and give it the logic to do the compute? And wouldn't it then be artificially intelligent? That's it. The proposal's there, right at the beginning. You get that proposal once you reduce this Platonic Socratic notion. Logos is not about logical, right? Logical good behavior or, or logical etiquette or, or logical formalism. The proposal is that's only managing your inferential generation of your beliefs. That's telling nothing about the procedural generation of your skills. It's talking not at all about the perspectival generation of your sensibility, nothing at all about the, the participatory transformation of your character traits. So notice of, you've got the four features of a virtue. In order to be honest, you have to have beliefs, but you also have skills. You also have to have, be able to take certain perspective states of mind, and you also have to cultivate your, your, your character. We have overwhelming evidence that this is inadequate. You can get people to have Terrific expertise at moral reasoning and teaching moral philosophy, and it is not zero predictive of how moral they are in their life. The, the GPT machine show this. Ask the machine to rattle off Kant's arguments for the for the category. There it is. Does that make the machine moral? Not at all. So, what's what Plato is saying is all four of those have to be trained. They have to be integrated, and what's, what you have to get at is how do we deceive ourselves when we're making inferences about our beliefs? Well, logic can help. That's, it has a role. But how do we deceive ourselves in the skills that we're cultivating? How do we deceive ourselves about the perspectives we're taking? Do you know a lot of our irrationality comes from our inability to take proper perspectives? Many of the cognitive biases, like the confirmation, by, my side bias, are all versions of egocentrism an inability to take a perspective other than one's own. Do you see what I'm saying? Rationality was this more comprehensive concern for all the ways in which we know, all the dimensions of virtue, and all the ways in which we are self-deceived and tries to address them in a comprehensive manner. And Descartes, and he explicitly says, I'm not going to worry about all that morality. I'm just going to lop it all off, and we're just going to do this thing here. It reminds me of um, trust the science and that phrase and how funny it was to me at the time when it started to be spread as a mantra of the COVID era, because of course, speak to any scientist and they would tell you the first rule of being a scientist would be to not trust the science. Yes. That's your job as a scientist. Right. And, 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 then, and so this gets to, to a deeper point, right? Which is the, one of the hallmarks of rationality is to fixate your perspective on the products of your cognition and not care, notice the word I'm using, not care about the process. See, let me give you a clear instance of that. It's called critical detachment. So you give people, find, uh, find a proposition people really 
believe in, right? And, and I'm not taking a stand on this. I have a stand, but this is not what I want to get involved in. Like, you, <laughs> you, you, like do you believe, is abortion right or wrong? <laughs> right? And you get, and, right? And then what you do is you do one of the following. You give them a really bad argument. Let's say they believe abortion is, is wrong. You give them a really bad argument that leads to the conclusion that they like. You give them a really good argument that leads to the opposite conclusion, and you ask them to evaluate the arguments. And they'll say the one that leads to the conclusion they like is a good argument, and the one that leads to the conclusion they don't like is a bad argument, which means they don't pay attention to the quality of the process. They only fixate on the product. Which is, again, the death of the Socratic method. Exactly. Which would, in some way, uh, put a, a higher value on a good argument rather than a good outcome. And I would say yes, but even more so, it puts an even higher value on you getting to step back to the place from which you can ask the kind of questions that will lead you into reflective argument about the process. And so when we get fixated on the product and all we have is this propositional level and we've left off skill and we've left off perspective states of mind, and we've left consciousness out by doing that, by the way, and we've left out, we've left out that transformative relationship in which our self is constructed. We've left all that out. We're trying to make our beliefs and, and what are the products of our beliefs? Well, propositions, ideas. And so we get fixated on the hope that that, the, the ideas, the ideology, that's going to give us everything we need. And of course, that's tremendously false. And it's tremendously irrational because we're focused on the products and we're focused on the thinnest layer of all of the cognition that goes into virtue and wisdom. Sacredness seems to have taken on this element of only being used to serve an end in that kind of way. The sacredness or zealousness of belief seems to drive only towards a, a, a goal which once you have gone further far enough down that road, you kind of can't come back and do the Socratic method yes. of questioning, which you're, you're speaking about here. So how do we, in some way, I'm trying to be hopeful here as well, regain some sense of the, the sacred as actually more meaningful and more complex? Think about how the word sacred has degenerated to mean that which we don't call into question, mm -hmm. and it and, and it uh, and you ask what people find sacred by asking what they believe. What do you most believe? What's your belief system? Imagine if we could remember that for most people across different cultures and history, with any kind of philosophical tradition, that would have been an absurd question to ask. What they found sacred, Plato would go, "My beliefs, my beliefs." What, what? My beliefs, they might be true, they might be false, they're, they're right. But Plato wanted to ask questions about, like, what, what am I identifying with? What, 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 what is filling my awareness? He had a contemplative notion of rationality, not just a computational. What is it I'm beholding that is calling me to transformation? How am I seeing deeply into reality so that I feel called beyond myself to transform myself to that deeper so when people experience mystical experience, I do work on this too, when they experience mystical experience or like just spontaneously or in their psychedelic experience and they have it, they have this experience that I call ontonormativity. Remember that, then you can impress your friends. Right? So onto, <laughs> Depends what sort of friends you have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> onto means being, right? And normativity means the, the, what you should do. So people have the experience of the really real and they don't experience that as a passive spectator. They don't go, oh, that's the really real. I've got a fact. 
They experience it as, I have to change my life, my relationships, often my work identity, perhaps my, my romantic identity, in order to get, come into a more continuous contact and conformity with that really To like real. retouch that really real. Yes. yes. And, that, and that, that's the mattering. That's the mattering with the most real. Now, that's right, that connectedness. I use, and I do this to be provocative, I use the ancient word for that kind of connectedness, religio, which of course is the, one of the etymological proposals for our word religion. Because when we're connected to the really real, we experience sacredness, not as some cognitively complete set of ideas that we have to affirm, and right? it's instead this, it's this sense of something being an inexhaustible source of transformative insight and intelligibility. Sacred is, Plato is sacred to me. That doesn't mean I think I can't question him. It doesn't mean that I think everything, I have to agree with everything Plato said. That's ridiculous, Plato wouldn't want that. What it means is I read Plato, I get transformed. I go out into the world, the world discloses itself to me in a new way. I get transformed some more by that. I go back and I read Plato and I see something I hadn't seen before. I go, oh. And, then, and this cycle continues, and I open up, and the world opens up, and I go deeper into my psyche and transformation. I go, the world discloses itself deeper and deeper to me, and then I get a sense of this is inexhaustible. You're also becoming an agent of the sacred then. You are not just simply absorbing the sacred. You become an active participant. Yes. Spreading sacredness. Yes, and I like what you did there. You bound agency to the notion of participation rather than to what we try to divide agency up to, into, which is like romantic expression onto the world. Think of the language. I must express myself, press myself onto the world, and the world is a blank canvas. And we got that. That's our cultures just stick with that. Or we've got the other one. I'm a blank slate. Empiricism and the finger of reality writes on me. And I just have to, right? And that's, and that's, and, and, and. I've and, met a lot of men like that. <laughs> no, that's, oh, that's sad. <laughs> it's all right, I'm all right. <laughs> I hope, I hope, one, I, I, I aspire to be an exception to that pattern that you found. <laughs> you are certainly an exception, John. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. 
and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, so Descartes, I've had explained that he, he took body, soul, and spirit, and he removed soul. Um, spirit being the things that connects everything and soul being a kind of field or of some kind of projection of who you're going to become um, and then the body is the body um, and then so how much do you think that that loss of soul and the concept of soul in our society in us understanding what soul means and it just not being part of our language that people talk about soul but I don't think anyone really knows what that means and do you think the fact that we don't know what it means is part of the problem and my second question is um, this horror thing you said about when gaps open up in our reality and we start to get like terrified by the fact that those gaps are widening and we might be losing a grip. In psychedelic experiences, sometimes that happens just before a big breakthrough, like the most anxious moment, the most horrifying moment where you're losing the grip and the gaps are widening is the moment before you have the big breakthrough and a new reality is created. And so I just wanted to ask if you think that's what you mean or if uh, if that's part of what you're saying yeah first of all excellent questions and i think there's a through line between them um so the first so descartes abandons the notion of soul part of it is because he was rejecting the aristotelian framework in which soul was the idos the structural functional organization of the body the form uh that's the aristotelian view and he and, and in that view, matter doesn't have an independent existence. Matter is just the potentiality that is informed by the IDOS. And then in Descartes' time, matter becomes a real thing. It becomes a substantial thing that resists. And so the Aristotelian notion doesn't have a job anymore. And then the religious notion is that the soul is that in, in, that, that in us which is sacred that responds to the sacred. And Descartes doesn't see a place for this and so he thinks everything that needs to be captured is captured in the in knowing, in knowing, in computation. And so he he just identifies soul and mind together. He just uses them interchangeably. And I think we can go back and say, well, maybe there's a way in which we can bring back both of those notions. And this is what the cognitive science I do, four e. 40 cognitive science, cognition is inherently embodied, embedded, enacted, and extended, and I can go on about that if anybody wants me to, can give us a notion of soul and the responsiveness to the sacred. So the embodiment is to say that there are things going on below what we usually take to be our, our knowing that make our knowing possible and that we need to properly 
put into our model of uh, cognition. So I do a lot of work on what's called relevance realization. You're all doing it right now. You're doing it with your attention. You're doing it, what is it? The amount of things you could pay attention to in this room, the amount of information you could get. You could be focusing on any little pixel on this table. And what's the correlation between this and this and this? And, this? and is there a correlation between that and that color there? The amount of things and the ways you could fix your attention is uncountably large. The, the, amount, of, the amount of information you have in long-term memory, uncountably large, and all the combinations you could make. All the combinations of behavior you could do. If you take just take something much more limited, a chess game, and all the alternative pathways you could you have to explore in order to possibly play all the potential sequences of moves. The number of alternative pathways exceeds the number of atomic particles in the universe. That's for a chess game. I take it that your life is more complicated than that. In fact, it's so complicated. And this is what you're doing. You're zeroing in on what's relevant right now. You did it like that. And you didn't do it this way. You didn't represent every part of the environment and see if it was relevant or not. Because that would take you more than the rest of the life of the universe. This sounds like a Zen Cohen. You ignore most of the information in a way that makes obvious, and obviousness is not part of physics, in a way that makes obvious what you should pay attention to. This is happening below your level of... If you don't do this, you can't get the representations going. It's coming out of the bioeconomy of your body. It's, 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 it's coming out of biological principles that are organizing how you pay attention. And then that makes representational cognition possible. So your embodiment is at this deeper level. And that, so in that sense, it's picking up on what Aristotle used to, or something like what he was talking about. Now that connectedness, relevance is connectedness. Look, it, it, is the relevance in this? No. Is the relevance in me? No. It's a connectedness between, we fit, we're fitting to each other. We're belonging together, like the meaning in life. You belong, you fit to the world, you're connected. Right? And then the sacred is that which right, allows us to sense that I am fitting to the world in a way that is constantly opening me up. Let me try, let's go back to your attention. Sorry, this is a, this, I need some time on this. Okay, so you all know how evolution w works. I don't mean like the nitty gritty. Basic idea, variation and selection, right? You, you do variation, you do selection on it, and then from what's selected, you do more variation, selection, variation, selection. And that's how we got here. Is that okay? That's all I need. Okay, your attention is doing the same thing. It's happening right now. You have one network, right, task focus that is trying to keep you focused on this bizarre guy saying this weird crap to you, right? And then there's the default mode network that's going, let's mind wonder. Let's think about something else. Well, what, 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 I wonder why I'm thirsty. I, I wonder, are all Canadians as odd as him? <laughs> and, you're doing, and, 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 and what you do is you kill off almost all of those options and you bring it back into the task. But you, you save some of them and it evolves. And then you vary and select. You see what I mean? The principles of your attention are the same principles governing the evolution 
of life. And so you're looking for situations in which that fittedness to the world is constantly redefining itself, constantly evolving. And when you get that sacredness, that inexhaustible fountain, I can go back to it and fit. And like I was talking about with Plato, that's the sacred. And yet it is calling to, there's a part of you that's so receptive to that because that ability of getting this optimal grip on the world, that's a phrase from a philosopher, Mauro Ponte, is, right, it's, it's the core, it's, it's, it's under, every, everything that you are, your, your, your ability to have beliefs and represent the world, your, your, your sense of self, all of it emerges out of this sensory motor evolution of your attention and how things are relevant to you. And so when you get that evolve and you get that sense that that's happening, you get a sense of the sacred. Many of you can have that, the beginnings of that sense even before you get into full-blown sacredness. And I haven't forgotten the second question. There's a, and I have published on this, there's a thing Chick Mahai discovered called the flow state. The flow state is where people, like you've heard it, I'm in the zone. I'm, I'm flowing. You get it when you're dancing or playing jazz or doing martial arts sparring. You get this sense of, the, the, you know you're exerting a lot of effort, but it feels like absolute grace, almost effortless. Like when I'm sparring, my hand just goes up in the block and I just, my, my other hand just goes through the space. You feel, the goalie, I just put up my hand and the puck is there. There's this tremendous sense of being coupled, dynamic connectedness, coupled to the world, flowing with at one minute. Everything is super salient, almost as if you were having a continual aha a moment. And that is, if I, if I got to ask you one question about whether or not you might commit suicide, I wouldn't, what's your attachment style? I would ask you this, how often do you flow in your life? How often do you experience flow? Because it's massively predictive of how much you want to keep living. And it's not pleasure. This is the great mistake of our culture. Look at the things that induce the flow state. Rock climbing. Rock climbing makes no sense. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like something from Greek mythology by which you punish a person. You, climb up that rock face. You'll hurt yourself. You'll scrape yourself. You'll get tired and hungry. You might fall and hurt yourself. And once you get to the top, come back down. <laughs> Why do people do it? They do it because it reliably puts them into the flow state. Now, of course, we found a way to hijack that and get people addicted, video games, right? And every addiction comes off hijacking something that's deeply adaptive, right? So, now, to, I think we can get a notion of soul back. What you are, and notice what, what goes away in, in the flow state, reliably. What goes away in the flow state is that nattering narrative self-ego. How am I doing? What are they thinking of me? What's my status? How am I doing? What's my hair look like? Do they notice my stomach? How am I doing? What does she think? What does she, oh, I don't think he likes me. Oh, no, how am I doing? That goes away. That narrative ego that tells us that it's, ne it's absolutely central to our agency, we get a moment where we realize it's lying. And we get a sense of a deeper part of ourself, deeper than all of that narrative, all of that, stuff that's actually generative of that connectedness that we find so life-giving and meaning-making. That's soul. That's responsive to the sacred. Horror. The sacred balances two things off against each other. It balances off giving you a sense of home. Talked about domicide. So what the sacred does is it gives you 
it, it tries to make you at home in the, in the cosmos. In fact, we can't call it a cosmos. We don't have a cosmos. We have a universe. Cos, cosme, cosmetics, beautiful. Cosmos means there's a beautiful order to things and you appreciate the beauty and you want to be here because of the beauty. All right? The sacred homes you, but it also takes you to the horizon of horror. Because what it's trying, this is, this is why one of the most prototypical ways people understand and cross-culturally talk about the sacred is the sense of the numinous. This is, Otto uh, 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 put this proposal. The numinous is the sense of something is terrifying but fascinating. If you read accounts of people encountering God, it's not like, hey, that was, that, that was chill. That was great. Really good time. They go, that was, oh, and I don't want it to ever happen again. If you see me, you will burn, you will die, right? There's all this, right? The sacred simultaneously tries to anchor you in the sense, a profound sense of cosmic home, but it also tries to take you to the horizon of horror. So you're also, and why would it do that? Because it's constantly getting you to to and fro so that your ability to fit to the world is constantly evolving. And that was my attempt to weave the two together. And what an attempt it was. No, 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 you can't just get a mic. You have to give me a hug. <laughs> it's really good to see you. It's good to see you, my friend. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good, I'm Thank good. Thank you so much for this evening. Now every question is going to want that treatment. <laughs> yeah, I just know. Oh, him. come yeah. on. <laughs> Canadian. I've completely forgotten my question. Um, so, um, I'm wondering whether we've lost the sense of the sacred because we've lost a sense of the sacred space uh, or the sacred place um, that, that, that we can, if you like, liberate ourselves from the notion of sacral propositional truths and, and recapture a sense of uh, it, um, the embodied sacred, which I think is what you've been hammering home. Um, but by by recovering this notion of of pilgrimage or you know there was this ancient practice of incubation yes. where you would yep. you'd go to a place that was holy and you'd sleep there and you'd enter this this mediating state between between being alive and being somewhere else being in fairy and 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 that would render you that would render you holy because holiness is in the universe, but it's 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 focused. There's a locus of it here, and it's and it's. You get the point. Yes. Um, so that's my question. Thank you, Sebastian. Um, read his book. Go on, say the name of your book, certainly. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> <laughs> Only in this audience. Only in this audience. The world. Is, the world. The, is the world as God's icon is my book. Excellent book arguing that uh, Aquinas should be understood more as a Neoplatonist than as an Aristotelian. And I think it is right. So, um, Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, there's a book out called the Hagia Sophia. By the way, this sacred Hagia, right? Well, sacred what? What's Sophia mean? Wisdom. Wisdom. This, is, this is one of the most holiest churches in, right, in the Byzantine, the holiest church in the Byzantine Empire. It's about wisdom. Right, holy wisdom. Now, of course, that's bound up with Jesus as the logos and so forth. But notice 
the connection between sacredness and wisdom. And there's a book out on the Hagia Sophia, and it's basically the Hagia Sophia, uh, and I don't, I, this isn't quite the right word, but I don't know what word to use. It's a machine for putting you into a state of that receptivity to the sacred. It, like, it, it's designed so that the way light bounces off there, you're put into a liminal visual space. The way sound echoes, you, like it, it, it sits on the edge, so the chanting, right? And then the ins, like it's designed to basically give you like sort of, uh, like in a, in a good sense of this, like something like an acid trip. But of course, you're not tripping out and you're not losing your faculties. It's designed to put you, as Sebastian rightly said, into this liminal place. Or you've got the incubation places. They were usually, you had to go down in a cave and then there were various uh, representations of deities in the pagan world. And what you would do is you would, you would do a lot of these weird rituals underground with other people, very strange and eerie. And then you would uh, you'd have a dream in which that's the, where the idea of incubating a dream came from. You, you'd have a dream that would address some problem you're having and would help transform. Usually the dream didn't give you the answer. It, put a, it, it challenged you to a transformation that you needed to undergo. And so I think the, sense, the, the, the fact that we've lost the sense of that there are... What we, we're, we're tending to lose uh, place into just space Anyways, that's been one of the ongoing things, uh, and 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 uh, this is making it e even worse. But the Your idea, phone, not me. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the, um, the the fact that we don't recognize how much our embodiment. Let me do the other E's. Let me do the other E's, and, and why a place is really important for the sacred. So obviously, embodiment. Embodiment and place are bound together. We've talked about that, right? Embedded. Embedded means you're sewn into your environment. You're embedded in the environment. Look, give up the notion that your mind is in your head. By the way, that's only something you're imagining. You, oh, but I look into my mind. Yeah, you do, but you're not looking into your head. None of you can tell me if you have a brain tumor. The, 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 Aristotle looked here. The Egyptians looked here. Okay, your mind isn't in here. You don't have a computer in here, and your mind isn't in here. Your mind is between you and the world. You're embedded. You're embodied. Your mind is this way, and it's this way. You're embedded. You, it's enacted. Your mind isn't something you have. Your mind is something you do. It's something that comes out in in your sensory motor loop with the world. I, as I move, I sense differently, and as I sense differently, I move differently. There's that loop. It's enacted, and it's extended. You are very rarely a monological, in both senses of the word, monologue, monologue and logical, you're very rarely a monological problem solver. You're almost always solving your problems through parts of the world, especially other people. How many of you invented English? Put up your hand. How many of you are running the electrical grid so we could be here? How many of you invented that phone? How many of you built this building, this furniture? How many of you made the clothes you're using? How many of you are responsible for all of the education you received? How, how, can one person run an airline? Can one person run a university? Can one person do science? Most of our cognition is done in an extended fashion. You need to go to places where being in place, being embodied matters. 
where you're embedded into that. It's like, as I said, it's like a machine of transformation that says you're in, you're not in normal time and space, you're in, you're in transformative time and space. You need to be enacting it. You need to be going through ritual. And ritual shouldn't be a dirty word anymore. Freud did a great disservice when he equated ritual to obsessive behavior. Okay? And then you need to do it with and through this place and other people in this place. So places matter. Yeah, very deeply. What are the alternatives, though, the contemporary alternatives to ritual, if they are not in a kind of sacramental, um, religious sense? You are doing ritual, you're just doing it implicitly. And, and so because you're doing it implicitly, you don't have any reflective appreciation in both senses of the word, understanding or valuing of it. So uh, ritual makes use of um, the imaginal. So we tend to think of imagination as something in our head pictures, and that's fine. But Corbin said, that's not what the imaginal means. The imaginal is when you're using imagination in order to see into the world a certain way. So the first would be like, I ask you a picture sailboat, you can do that. And I can ask you, are the sails up or down? And you can tell. Oh. The other is, think about what's happening when a child picks up a blanket, ties it around, picks up a stick and says, now I'm Zorro. They're not picturing Zorro. They're trying to enact. Zorro. They're trying to take the perspective of Zorro. They're trying to assume the identity of Zorro. They're trying to see what in the world is disclosed when I'm Zorro. What skills could I cultivate as Zorro? They're, they're, they're playing in a serious fashion with the possibility of becoming virtuous in the way Zorro is. That's, that's the imaginal. Okay. Then I want you to notice how much right, the imaginal is sewn into even the way you speak. That you're actually doing all this sensory motor interacting when you talk. I hope you get what I'm saying, but maybe you don't see my point, but maybe you understand. I hope you grasp what I'm saying. Do you see what I'm showing you? That you're using sensory motor words to talk about abstract thought. In fact, when you move, listen to abstract to lift above. All of this, when you're moving around in thought, that's all imaginal. That's all imaginal. You're doing it all the time. And look what I'm doing with these weird meat things. I'm doing this. Gesturing. Why? Do you ever realize that you gesture when nobody's around? If, have you ever caught yourself doing that? You're on the phone and nobody's around you. <laughs> that's not stupid. If, if I ask you to explain a difficult problem, this is all based on research, and I make you hold a pole so you can't gesture, your performance degrades. Gesture is not ornamentation. It's actually a vehicle of cognition. You are doing enacted poetry all day long, enacted, imaginal. You're doing this all the time. What ritual says is, let's make that explicit, let's educate it, and let's let, and let's put it against a standard, make it rational. Not again, inferentially rational, but here's the standard. A good ritual doesn't stay in the place where it's practiced. It transfers broadly and deeply to many areas of your life. Let me give you one example, just please, okay? So across many cultures, people do fire walking. They walk on hot coals, which is like, what? 
And if you talk to them, they'll give you all different cultural explanations for why well, the ancestors said this, or this is how we make sure the women love us, and blah, 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 blah. Right? But what's actually going on, I would argue, what makes this a powerful ritual is the following. When you're walking on coals, right, there's actually relatively slow conduction of the heat from the coals to your feet. So you have to walk at the right, if you walk too fast, you kick the coals up and you'll burn yourself. If you walk too slow, you have, you'll burn yourself. So you have to get the timing just right. And what you have to do is become extremely mindful of how you are, mind and body, and of your environment and how you're interacting with the environment so you get the timing right. Do you think that's a skill that could transfer broadly and deeply to many parts of your life? Getting really properly paying attention so I pick up the timing and I get the timing right. Of course it does. That's a powerful ritual. It's rational to perform that ritual. It doesn't give you new beliefs. It couples you to the world in a profound way. We are always doing rational. We just do it in a, an implicit, uneducated, untutored, unexplored, and unchallenged manner. Just tying in with that, um, I, th I think we use something like 10 to 20% of our mental ability. Uh, you probably know the figures better. A lot better than me. So most people would say, you know, that's an amazing thing that we don't use 80% of our mental capacity or whatever. Is there any way that the those four dimensions that you mentioned earlier feed into that or is there any way that we, we can tap into that extra mental potential to achieve those, um, those things? And also tied in very quickly, if I could, um, I was listening to something about Freud and the um, talk, uh, not talking, <laughs> about Freud's research, uh, Freud's work about the ego, the superego and the id. Could you just say something about that and how that feeds into connecting to the world? Yeah. Um, I was very impressed uh, with what you said about the sacred not being um, an idea of what I believe in, but being something which forces me to interact with the world in a certain way and which forces me to see the world in a certain way. Uh, my question is, what role do you think that art plays in 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 the idea of a sacred? And in, wh in which ways can it almost be a substitute for the sacred, which is an idea that has been tried many, many times? In what ways does it diverge from it, and in what ways does it not live up to that idea of the sacred? Okay, so the, to the first question, um, sorry a bit of bad news. That idea that we only use 10 to 20% of our brain is pretty much false. Um, I had a friend of mine who actually tried to trace the origin of this sort of urban myth, and it goes back to the 50s when people were sort of slicing out pieces of the brain, and they and people weren't losing function. They're like, well, well, we must not use most of our brain, and that's because we had a very compartmentalized notion of how the brain uh, has its functions. And we now know that that's pretty much not true. You're actually using most of your brain most of the time for most of what you do. Now, but the but the point you wanted to ask, and so I, I don't want to be disrespectful to the intent of the question, which is, do we have good reason to believe? we have tremendous potential. And the idea is, yes, we do. Yes, we do. In fact, we're going through something of a revolution because, well, one of it is up until the 90s, we thought the brain was sort of locked in after you achieved early adulthood because neurons don't reproduce. But now with we discovered synaptogenesis, 
And then we discovered neurogenesis. Synaptogenesis is making new synaptic connections or killing them off. You can get smarter by killing connections, by the way. You lose a lot of synaptic connections in the first two years of your life. That actually makes you smarter. It's neural pruning. Um, neurogenesis is the making of new neurons. Well, neurons don't reproduce. How does it work? We have a bunch of stem cells in your brain, and then they migrate, and they get specialized to what they needed to be. And so if you're playing a violin a lot, the, ping, the, part of your, the part of your brain that is responsible for the fingering will get thicker over time. So it's a tremendous plot. So the brain is not a machine. The brain is a machine of machines that can make itself into a new kind of machine. And that's a tremendous kind of protection. That's unlike any other machine we have right now so far. Right? So tremendous, tremendous potential. And then the third thing, very recent, is called exaptation. So this is also, notice how more and more the notions that we're using to explain cognition are coming from biology and evolutionary theory. That's not a coincidence. So what am I doing with my tongue right now? I'm speaking. Do, do other organisms have tongues? Yeah. You should say yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> okay. Do they all speak? No. So did tongues originally evolve for speaking? No. But evolution didn't have to make a speaking machine from nothing. It could take the tongue, which is highly sensitive because it's a poison and food detector, highly flexible because it helps you move food around in your mouth, and happens to be in the air passageway of your vocal cords. It's almost already designed for speech. And what so it's been exapted for, for speech. Did that work? Did that land as an explanation? Right? So evolution doesn't remake things from scratch. It exapts from what happens before. And in another, like, like what I said earlier about how your brain is sort of like evolution sped up, your brain also does that. Your brain takes, thing, machi takes machines that were built for one reason and exapts them up into a new purpose. I mentioned one already. You build a machine early on about sensory motor navigation, how to, how to navigate the physical environment. Then you exact that up into moving through conceptual space. And we talk about things right above each other and below each other, in and out. And we even use left and right to talk about the political world. And we do this without even noticing it. That's acceptation. So there's tremendous potential. There's tremendous potential. What about Freud? So Freud's interesting uh, because um, Freud is going through a bit of a revival right now. Uh, so, so first of all, I want to properly situate. Freud, Freud discovers the unconscious, which is the first big dent in the Cartesian picture. And he discovers that a development is a product of environment and biology interacting. That seems so, well, of course, but he, he came up with if, if all he was right about was those two things, he gets to be in the Hall of, of the Immortals forever. Maybe not as big of a room as Plato, but still a nice place, okay? And I think a lot of the specific theories of Freud have been seriously undermined and called into question for empirical reasons. But we do seem to be coming to this idea of something like a tripart division of cognition that is somewhat like Freud's division between the id, the superego, and the ego, right? And so there's a part of us that seems to be about managing the 
environment and this loop that I've been talking about. And then there's, as I've tried to indicate, you have a vertical dimension to your body and that bo it's not just Cartesian clay that you've got to feed. It's actually generating and structuring your cognition. And then the idea is we, we, are, we belong to the collective intelligence of distributed cognition. That's what I was talking about when I was talking about how it takes all of us to do English and it takes all of us to run, right? And then it, that world, it, we are responsible to each other. We have to justify. Look, look what language does. Language makes me super exposed to you. Like no matter how eloquently a dog barks, it can't tell you that its parents were poor but hardworking. That's Bertrand Russell. I had to quote at least one British philosopher again, right? So, right? It's real. have a child until they can talk. What is wrong? What, why are you still crying? You're fed, you're burp, you're still... We don't know what's going on. As soon as she starts to talk, she is extremely... I get access to the guts of her soul. So we have to build up a system of properly managing that boundary, just like we have an immune system to properly protect our biological boundary. And so we build up a justification system, which is very, but it, it, it's how we fit into this superego of the superorganism of the collective intelligence of distributed cognition. So there's ways in which Freud is making a comeback. Is that, is that okay? And I'm trying to remember your question. Art. Art, excellent. So art, it, I mean, art is really interesting. Art emerges in the Upper Paleolithic transition. So we're, we, we seem to be anatomical human beings at conservatively around 250,000 BC, maybe a little bit earlier, 300,000, right? And then there doesn't seem to be any significant evidence of biological change, right? There are precursors to what I'm going to talking about, but something goes through this huge expansion um, around... Uh, 40,000 BCE, when suddenly, and again, it, people describe it as a big bang. That's unfair. There's precursors, and there's precursors that are around 120,000 BCE, um, especially in South Africa and the, the record. But what we get is this explosion of all these things at the same time. We get really significant projectile weapons. We get the atlatl, right? And we, we get people, we, we go from thick shafted weapons, which could be thrown, but not very good, and, and the Neanderthals are using those. And then what we get is we get thin little spindly spears with, and, and we have bone or much finer stone. And then we, we can throw them long distances. Projection. And that actually requires tremendous organization of your cognition. Project. We, like, think about it. You're throwing all day long. Have you ever worked on a project? Oh, but I object. That's to throw against. But it's all a subjective experience. I'm throwing it sub, throwing it under me. You're throwing all day long, by the way. Again, that imaginal stuff, right? And you get this explosion in projectile weapons, the first calendars. There's no numbers, but they're the first calendars. We get clear evidence of music. We get clear evidence of full-blown representational art. I think the, the cave paintings give us the evidence of ritual and the beginnings of what we might call religion. That's controversial, but it's not insane, right? Art is in that milieu. There's something about what happens is we start to seriously play with the, with the, with the machinery of sense-making. We start to celebrate religio for its own sake. We start to play with how we find things salient and relevant. Look at music. 
Music does nothing. All you're doing with music is playing with what people find salient and you're putting up patterns and they're just making sense of towards no end. It's just serious play with what you find salient and relevant and what patterns and it's within you and without you and it binds you to the world in a profound... Watch a movie and the soundtrack goes off. Oh, you sorry. Nietzsche, life would be a mistake without music. When you ask people, if you have to pick one art form that most gives you access to the sacred, the majority answer is music. See, music, I think, plays a very big role in the serious play, and we play music. The serious play in which we are doing like what the kid does when they're playing being Zorro. It allows us to play with the possibilities of how we can make sense of things so that we open up what we can connect to and who we can possibly be. And therefore, it's deeply interwoven with the sense of the sacred. Now, I can say similar things about visual art, but I'm using music because it's really accessible to people. I think the idea that art should be separated from meaning-making in that strong sense that I'm ar arguing and a sense of the, a, a sensing, a making sense of, a, 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 and a realization in both senses of the word, making real and becoming aware of the sacred. I think that's a mistake. I think that's a mistake. Now, we don't have to bind music to particular religious propositions, because the propositional isn't doing that much. Really, it isn't. Like, we've done research, right? And you, you, people cultivating wisdom. The people in a religious tradition do better than people in the secular world at cultivating wisdom. Now everybody's, <gasps> there's no insignificant difference between any of the religious traditions. So all the, they're all better than the secular, but non, no one of them is better than any of the others. There's something else going on there that they share that isn't captured in the doctrines. I'm not here, I wouldn't, to try and dismiss theological projects around trying to work out metaphysics. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sense of the sacred, and I'm talking about how we disconnected art from that because we realized art had an important function we couldn't deal without. But then we thought, well, we don't want it attached to any particular social religious institution. And then we thought, well, we'll at first we attached it to the state. No, we didn't. Yes, we did. We had a patronage system for music. And then now we, what we've done is we've attached it to the market. And I put it to you that that has not been a progression or an increase but la a largely a detriment to what music is doing for us. The fact that music, music is going... Do you know that there's musicologists are studying the fact that melody is in decline? Melody is in decline, and we are more and more moving to just a super simple, salient beat that catches your attention and doesn't call you to transformation whatsoever because that makes you subject to all kinds of political and economic manipulation. And of course, that's why it's promoted. That's my answer. We now have to move, I'm afraid, from the sacred to the profane, which is down to the bar below. But I have only one thing left to do, which is to thank Professor Viveki for truly an evening full of wisdom, sacred wisdom, and I would love for you to join me in thanking him in that.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.